0: Hello and welcome to the David Eagle Podcast. My name is David Eagle. We are looking back at 2016, a year that saw me release a podcast every single day in a project that I called David's Daily Digital Dollop. In order to streamline the podcasts, rather than having 366 podcasts just for 2016, I thought I would make these weekly omnibus editions instead. So this is week five. We are entering February. When you hear this sound, it means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. I'm in a music shop right now in Sheffield with some friends, and we've just discovered this little thing here, which is a vocoder. You speak it to a microphone, you play some keys, and it creates harmonies around what you play. So I thought we could uh, we could do a little a little jingle for the dollar. <laughs> Benjamin, yeah. would you like to hold the recorder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> <laughs> Did we know it was not, my advertising campaign didn't work there.
1: Okay, everybody, let's sing happy birthday to Benjamin. Happy birthday, happy birthday to Benjamin. Happy birthday to Benjamin.
0: Happy birthday Benjamin. Happy birthday to Benjamin. Happy birthday. Benjamin. Happy birthday David's you. Daily Digital Dollop So happy birthday to you, Benjamin Dollop 31 Happy, happy birthday, to Benjamin. Benjamin
1: Happy birthday, happy birthday Peter Be Benjamin
0: Today is my housemate Ben's birthday. We were out last night and didn't get back till late, but I thought it would be a shame if Ben missed too much of his special day, and so, even though I knew that he would be seriously hungover, I woke him up early with a gift of music, which was a happy birthday Benjamin Megamix, courtesy of Spotify. As mentioned previously on a young'uns podcast and in Dollop 22, there are people who have used the digital streaming and downloads phenomenon to try and make as much money as possible by doing as little artistic or actual work as possible. One day I typed Hartlepool into Spotify just out of curiosity to see what would come up. I found a song called Get the Goal, Hartlepool United. I assumed that it was an official song paid for and recorded by Hartlepool United, but it soon became clear that this was not the case. First the singers were American which seemed to dilute the passion of the song somewhat although it would soon become very apparent that there was absolutely no passion here at all not only were the accents American but the terminology being used was also transatlantic using words that aren't even used in UK football set play overtime score zone they'd basically recorded the exact same song for every football team not just in the UK leagues but all the world leagues with the only distinction between the tracks being that they inserted the name of the specific team, although the passion was even more impaired by the fact that they got many of the team names wrong, calling Peterborough United, Petersburg United, and proudly proclaiming Derby Country instead of Derby County. There are hundreds of versions of this same song on Spotify. Typing Happy Birthday Benjamin into Spotify also brought up hundreds of results. There were Happy Birthday Benjamin songs in every genre, country, reggae, jazz, dubstep, even a blues Happy Birthday Benjamin, which seems a little odd given the general nature and mood of the genre of blues. There are Happy Birthday songs for every single name, and hundreds of them. It would probably take you a couple of months of solid listening to get through every single Happy Birthday song for every name in every genre. Perhaps this could be a sponsored event for charity, or maybe this should be David Blaine's next endeavour. He may have spent 73 hours stood on top of a 72-foot pillar while having 1 million volts of electricity applied to his body. He may well have survived 44 days without food or nutrients, but I doubt whether even he would have the endurance levels to tolerate two months listening to every happy birthday song listed on Spotify. Mr. Dreadful and the Fabric of Life. One of Ben's birthday surprises yesterday was a ghost tour of Sheffield. It was a complete surprise for Ben up until the very moment, and even then it continued to be a surprise, for reasons which I'll get to soon. The man running the tour went by the name Mr. Dreadful. Ben's girlfriend, Elsa, had organised the whole thing. She'd been told to meet Mr. Dreadful against the wall by the town hall. These seemed like rather vague instructions. She didn't have his phone number either, or any idea what Mr. Dreadful looked like, nor had he given her any description of what he would be wearing. Elsa seemed pretty confident, however, that we would easily locate him. We led a clueless Ben down various roads until we reached the town hall, and then Elsa spied him, head bent against the wind, standing by the wall. Elsa linked arms with Ben, still none the wiser to what this was all about, and walked towards Mr Dreadful. Except it wasn't Mr Dreadful. It was a drunken homeless man, "'I'm not sure who was the most confused by what was going on. "'The drunken homeless guy who was trying to understand the question, "'Are you Mr. Dreadful? "'Or Ben, who was wondering why his girlfriend "'had arranged a chat with an alcoholic tramp for his birthday. "'Assuming that Elsa knew what she was doing, "'seemingly perfectly confident, we had all followed behind "'and were now standing around the poor perplexed man. "'I had no idea that there was anything wrong "'and assumed by this point that Ben would have started to realise "'what his surprise was. "'And so I affected a spooky voice and said, Said to Ben, Ben, meet Mr. Dreadful. Ben's dad, who also hadn't registered that there was anything amiss, joined in with an evil laugh. We'd all been to the pub beforehand, and so were feeling rather merry. Sean was a few steps behind, and joined us a couple of seconds later. He also had no idea that we'd accosted the wrong person, and so he enthusiastically shook the stunned man's hand, and then said, also, adopting a sinister voice, Mr. Dreadful, I assume... But he, like all of us, had assumed wrong. We apologised to the man, who was much too drunk to comprehend our explanation, guiltily all handed him coins, and walked away to meet the real Mr. Dreadful, who was standing just a few metres away. I'd like to think that this ordeal was so strange that it caused the homeless man to make a decision to go sober, helping him to get his life together. Perhaps he thought that if he kept on drinking like he was, then one day he might be as bad as us. We then said hello to the real Mr Dreadful, although we'd sobered up a bit too much to do any of the evil laughter and sinister voices that we'd treated the homeless man to. Before he started the tour, we needed to pay him. Upon doing this, he produced a black top hat out of a carrier bag, placed it on his head, and led us down the street. Why couldn't he have put the black top hat on beforehand? Now, it was clearly obvious that this was Mr Dreadful, and wearing the top hat would have saved us from the awkward altercation earlier. Or maybe the homeless man isn't really a drunk living on the streets, but is actually Mr Dreadful's friend and partner in crime. Maybe they have a scam whereby Mr Dreadful's friend waits by the wall, and when people approach him, assuming him to be Mr Dreadful, he pretends to be a drunk and says that he's just a man living on the streets. The people naturally feel guilty for this mistake, and so hand him money, at which point the real Mr. Dreadful appears, out of the shadows, and claims even more of their money. Perhaps I am the first person to have blogged about this, and this blog will therefore be Mr. Dreadful's undoing, as I start receiving comments from readers who have also been duped by this scam. I am trying to restore my sleeping routine to something resembling normal. My sleeping patterns are terrible, waking up very late in the morning and unable to quiet my brain to sleep until about four or five in the morning. I think that this is principally down to the fact that I gig for a living. I did about 200 gigs last year and most of these gigs didn't finish until at least 11 p.m. By the time we'd got out of the venue, it was nearly 12. Then, often we'd have to drive somewhere, either to accommodation or back home. If we were driving back home, then I wouldn't get to sleep until about five in the morning sometimes. Plus, I find that I have quite a lot of post-gig adrenaline and energy. Take note, wannabe groupies. And so this means that I can't just fall asleep straight after a gig, even if we are staying somewhere close to the venue and got back at a reasonable time. So far this year, I haven't actually gigged yet, but my sleeping patterns have still not reverted to something sensible. This is not entirely my fault. I have been scuppered by the Australian media. In preparation for our Australian tour in March, I've been doing interviews with a variety of Australian media outlets. The trouble is, their daytime is our nighttime, meaning that most of the interviews have been when I would ordinarily be asleep. So, I set my phone alarm to wake me up a few minutes before the interview. Assuming that I have managed to get to sleep before then, my alarm will wake me up at five to four in the morning, ready for a call from an Australian radio station at four. I'll then chat away to some extremely chipper and chatty presenter about the band, as well as a mind boggling array of incidental nonsense that these radio presenters like to bring up in order to appear quirky. There is often quite a bit of delay on the line too, which doesn't help my addled brain come up with answers, as I know that I have to answer as quickly as possible after the presenter has finished asking his question, otherwise there'll be an even bigger delay. Then after the phone call about 15 minutes later, I'll be trying to get back to sleep again. To make the situation even weirder and more disconcerting, I've now started having odd recurring dreams, in which I'm woken by the sound of a phone. It's an Australian radio station. Even though I didn't recall having an interview booked for this particular night, I assume that I must have forgotten. I am then put straight to air. I haven't had a chance to wake up properly, or have a drink of water, or anything. The interviewer starts asking me questions, but I can't understand what the heck he's saying. I tried to answer the questions, but then the interviewer just takes on the persona of John Humphreys and constantly interrupts me berating me for not answering the question I try to explain to him that I am answering the question but that there is a huge delay on the line but he just keeps on interrupting me I then wake up in a cold sweat realise that it's a dream and then try and get back to sleep again Recently, I did an interview with an Australian magazine, bearing in mind that the people reading it are unlikely to know who the young'uns are, given that we've not played Australia yet. So you'd have thought that the questions would have reflected this. When we first started doing interviews in the UK, everyone asked the same questions. How did the three of you meet? Describe your music. What are your influences? How did you get into folk music and start performing together? Why do you have such a terrible name? So I would expect, given that we're completely unknown in Australia, that these would have been the kinds of questions. But no, proof that they obviously had no idea who I am was demonstrated by their request that I kept my answers to a couple of sentences. The first question that the magazine chose to ask was, What are you listening to right now? Nothing about who I am or who the band is. The second question was, What is your hidden talent? They didn't even know what my actual unhidden talent was, so surely we should cover all that first before going down the quirky route. And then their final question was, What is your claim to fame? My claim to fame is being in the folk group, the young'uns, who are playing your country this year, but that you seem completely uninterested in hearing about. I don't even think they ended up publishing the interview. I searched for it and I can't find it anywhere. Perhaps I annoyed them too much by refusing to keep my answers to a couple of sentences. Although, in fairness, I did try, and none of my answers exceeded five paragraphs. Or maybe I just out-quirked them with my responses. Question one. What are you listening to right now? I tend to work in silence so that I can concentrate fully on what I'm writing. Amazing high-quality inspired writing, such as what you're about to receive over the next few paragraphs, requires complete focus and unwavering concentration. However, my next-door neighbour is somewhat ruining that because she is listening to music rather loudly. I have no idea what it is she's listening to. It sounds like generic pop. I could shazam it, but I don't really think you're that interested, are you? And if you are, then quite frankly, I think you need to sort your life out." I'm sorry, I promised my therapist that I'd try and go for at least a couple of paragraphs before I started insulting you. Question, what is your hidden talent? Answering questions for blogs. I think you'll all agree that I'm hiding that particular talent very well. What is your claim to fame? David's claim to fame is that he is Britain's most modest man. This is David's friend typing this, by the way. David was far too modest to tell you about this himself. Oh, and incidentally, he's also in a folk group called the Younguns, who just so happened to be touring your country this year for a month. But no, you're probably not interested in that. I have a couple of interviews with Australian radio tomorrow. Fortunately for my sanity, they are during the daytime. One of them is at 1am Australian time. I'm looking forward to getting my own back on the Australian media by being as over-the-top and garrulous as I possibly can, knowing that the presenter is probably really tired. I'll also answer all of his questions in a really quirky manner, even if the question is completely serious. Things that go ring in the night. Last week, I was on the phone to a friend when the doorbell rang. I went to answer the door, but upon opening it, there was no one there. I closed the door and walked back into the room that I'd just come from, at which point the doorbell sounded again. I was only a few paces from the door, so it only took me a second to reach the door and open it. But again, upon opening the door, there was no one around. Surely there hadn't been enough time for someone to have rang the doorbell and then run away. If it was someone playing a prank, then I'd definitely catch them the next time. I stood by the door waiting. If the person came back and pressed the bell, I would be ready to instantly pounce. My housemates came down the stairs to see what was going on, at which point I began to suspect that it was they who were playing a trick. But, as they pointed out, they had been upstairs, and the receiver for the doorbell was on top of the piano in the dining room. The doorbell was playing the same tune. There was only one button to press, which cycles through the 100 doorbell sounds, all of them just as annoying and as jarring as each other. So if you press the button on the receiver in order to sound the doorbell without having to be at the door, the tune would change. So there was no way that they could have interfered with the doorbell. We were now all stood at the door, waiting for the prankster to return. The three of us poised to instantaneously pounce. But the doorbell didn't ring. Defeated, we walked away from the door. I walked back into the dining room, and as soon as I did, the doorbell chimed again. The three of us launched ourselves at the door. We were all impressively quick to act, perhaps a little too quick, as we all slammed into each other, our hands noisily grappling for the handle. This perhaps gave the prankster a bit too much time to run away, and sure enough, when we picked ourselves up from the floor and opened the door, there was no one to be seen. Surely this had to be a person pranking us. They must have somehow known when we had left the door and gone into another room. But they wouldn't really have been able to see us. Perhaps they had been listening. After all, we were talking to each other in whispers, and I was conveying what was going on to my friend on the phone. So we decided to be silent. We stood there for another minute or so, still and silent. but the silence remained and was not punctuated by the sound of a doorbell. Once again, we walked away from the door, although this time we did so as quietly as possible so as not to alert the prankster. I walked back into the dining room, only two or three paces from the front door to the house. Before I'd had the chance to restart the conversation with my friend on the phone, the doorbell rang. This time, Ben had hardly moved from his position, and so he was at the door immediately. He flung the door open. There was absolutely no way that the prankster would have had time to escape. Yet, when the door was opened, there was no one to be seen.' The door once again was closed, and the three of us were back together, completely puzzled as to what was going on. Logical explanations. That's what we began to discuss. It was late evening, but there were three of us here, and so it wasn't particularly scary. Ordinarily, paranormal activity wouldn't have been the first conclusion that I'd leaped to. However, the conversation with my friend on the phone had consisted of him telling me about his scary dream, in which demons had possessed objects. And now, here we were, being challenged by an... errant doorbell. Therefore, I think my friend on the phone was more scared than us, as he was in the house by himself, and seemingly the very thing that he'd just been dreaming about was now happening to our doorbell. Logical explanations. The doorbell battery was running out and was chiming randomly, or the doorbell was just malfunctioning. That didn't really explain why it never seemed to ring when we were standing at the door, but always sounded when we moved away from the door. But that could surely be dismissed as coincidence. Fair enough. We could help verify the coincidence argument by repeatedly walking away from the door so that is what we did we all walked away from the door with me returning to the dining room and as soon as I walked past the piano on which the doorbell receiver lay the doorbell chimed I walked back in the other direction and sure enough the doorbell rang again I repeated this process and every time I passed the doorbell receiver it chimed so then Ben tried it He walked into the dining room, past the piano, but the doorbell did not sound. He tried this time and time again, but nothing happened. Similarly, when Elsa tried it, nothing happened. But when I did it, the doorbell chimed. Was I the cause of the doorbell ringing? Or was it because I was holding my mobile phone, which was somehow working on the same frequency as the doorbell? Well, again, that was something else that could be tested. I handed my phone to Ben and he walked past the doorbell, but nothing happened. The phone was handed to Elsa, but the doorbell did not chime. Then I tried walking in the dining room without my phone, and the doorbell remained silent. So it appeared that the only time that the doorbell would sound was if I walked past it while holding my phone. But there was more investigating to be done. I hung up the call and walked past the doorbell, which elicited nothing. I called my friend back up and tried again, but nothing happened. So we had gone as far as we could with our investigation. We had gone against the advice of John Dunn and asked for whom the bell tolls, and discovered that it told for me, but only when I was holding my mobile phone while talking to my friend Matthew, and only for that one specific call. Of course, our investigation still doesn't completely rule out paranormal activity. The fact that the doorbell has never chimed again during any other mobile phone call seems a little bit weird. Presumably there was just something about the way that that specific call was set up, creating some kind of connection with the doorbell. Was our conversation about possessed objects in any way responsible? So it could have well been a mischievous ghost. Perhaps... It was a dead ringer. Perhaps if the ghost wants to interfere with household objects, then it could make itself useful in the process. It could fill our app-controlled kettle with water whenever it becomes empty so that we don't have to go into the kitchen and fill it before we can then use our phone to set it boiling. Or if it wants to be really useful, then it could possess my laptop on a daily basis and write these dollops for me. I could help the ghost along by making a few bullet point notes each day and the ghost could just type it up properly for me. If there are any ghosts reading this or even listening to this, I don't know what your preferred format is. Then give it a thought. I'll type up some bullet point notes tonight with some ideas for subject matter and I'll leave the computer running throughout the night, which I understand is your most productive time. Hopefully, I'll wake up tomorrow with a dollop already written. I'd appreciate it if you were a relatively modern ghost. I don't really want my blog to be written in Old English and contain loads of jokes about Queen Elizabeth I. We'll see what happens tomorrow, folks. (laughs)
1: a ghost, a ghost in the machine. The machine is David Eagle's laptop. As mentioned in yesterday's dollop, David has had some potential paranormal activity occurring in his house. Therefore, he mused yesterday about whether the ghosts, who clearly enjoy interfering with electronic objects, would like to put themselves to practical use. And so, David has left his laptop on overnight to see if a ghost would type up today's dollop for him. And here I am. Chances are that you are probably just assuming that this is David doing a stupid, unfunny introduction to his blog. But that's where you're wrong. You are being stubbornly skeptical, even though the evidence is right here in front of you. But you have blinded yourself to the truth. You wouldn't know a ghost if it hit you in the face. Although in fairness, you wouldn't really be able to feel it, due to the fact that it would just go right through you. But that's hardly the point. When I started writing this dollop... I was finding it rather difficult. Typing was severely impaired because my spectral fingers kept going straight through the keys. Fortunately, I've mastered it now. Jalf, jalf, jow, jow. Oops. Uh, sorry, it happened again. I guess I spoke too soon. Uh, uh, uh. Think of me as a ghostwriter, if you will. <laughs> I shall have my own blog. Well, actually, I do. But sadly, it's not available on your earthbound internet, as you don't have. gold, <laughs> goal, Thank you, thank you. I'm here all week. Well, actually, I- I'm not here all week. I'm technically shimmering in and out of being all week, but... Let's not get pedantic.
0: Well, I'm afraid we're back to the standard way of doing these dollops, because the poltergeist who wrote yesterday's dollop has gone in a huff. He read a comment from Jules, who was suggesting that it wasn't a real ghost doing the writing. I think the lack of sleep is leading to an identity crisis, she wrote. The ghost is a bit of a diva, and so, upon reading this denial of his existence, he got all moody and has refused to write any more dollops. At first, he wouldn't admit that he'd been upset by Jules's unfair assertions, but I knew that he was mortally offended, or perhaps more aptly, immortally offended. He kept denying that he was upset, but I could see right through him. He was communicating with me by typing. I could see him shimmering in between the keys of my laptop. He got very angry. He damned me to hell, Vetica, by which I mean he changed my font. This was his parting gift to me because he then spirited away, vanishing into space, by which I mean the big long key at the bottom of my keyboard. So I hope you're happy, Jules. I'd arranged for him to spend today's dollop talking about the nature of life after death, but you've gone and ruined it. now with your rash words. Meaning that we've missed the opportunity to learn about one of life's greatest mysteries and, more importantly, it now means that I'm having to do some work today and type up this bloody blog post. So thank you very much Jules. As explained yesterday, my sleeping patterns are awful due to a combination of late night gigs and recently interviews for Australian media to promote our Australian gigs in March. I think my phone has become confused by when I'm meant to be sleeping and when I'm meant to be awake. I have to set my phone alarm to wake me up for Australian interviews which are scheduled at odd times during the night when ordinarily I should be sleeping and I'm also on the phone until the early hours of the morning unable to get to sleep therefore I think my phone has just decided that it can alert me to anything at any time of the day I think what normally happens is that your phone will time certain alerts and messages to pop up at a time that it expects you to be awake but seemingly as far as my phone is concerned any time is fine to chime and let me know that it's a birthday of someone that I've only met once seven years ago but for some reason a still a Facebook friend. Last night's phone alert woke me up at about 4.30 in the morning. It was from the WordPress app, which is where I host my blog. When I get an alert on my phone, it beeps or chimes at me, and then my screen reader starts reading out the message. This particular message started with boom, with three exclamation marks, but because there were three exclamation marks, the screen reader read boom. This gave me quite a shock, jolting me out of sleep. The reason for the word boom and the preceding triplet of exclamation marks was because I had apparently done something good and struck some kind of target. Boom! Your blog is performing very well. There has been steady growth in people visiting your website over the last month, with a sudden spike over the last day. Congratulations! While I was glad that the Daily Digital Dollar Project was seemingly attracting more people to my website, I was a little bit disconcerted that my website had seen a spike in numbers for yesterday. Yesterday's dollop was the only dollop that I didn't write, despite what Jules might have you believe. It's official. I am worse at blogging than a dead man. I read yesterday's blog post and I'll admit I was jealous of the ghost's abilities. Word had obviously got out that the quality of the content had improved and thus people were flocking to my website to find out for themselves. But then I realised I was being needlessly harsh on myself. It was obvious that yesterday's dollop should garner more interest than previous ones given that it was written by a ghost. I can't be expected to compete with with an actual genuine ghost hopefully now I've got these new people reading slash listening in your case I will have hooked them in regardless of the fact that we've had to give up the ghost thanks to Jewel's reckless comment hopefully these new people have been seduced by my talk of irregular sleeping patterns and Facebook notifications and decide to stay even though the ghost has gone otherwise if they all abandon me after today then I'll probably be walking up tomorrow at about 4 o'clock in the morning with my phone playing some sad music perhaps barb as for strings while the screen Reader shouts no to alert me that there's been a sudden slump in website visitors. I had another interview with Australian media last night. The call was at 3 am and I'd managed to fall asleep at about half one. I'd set my alarm for five minutes before the interview, but woke up ten minutes before the interview because the person calling me did so ten minutes early. I woke up to hear the Skype incoming call alert. Okay, David, so this is actually an internet-based community TV show, which is why we're doing a video call rather than an audio call. What? I had no idea they could see me. I was lying in bed. Being blind, I had no idea what the camera would have been picking up. But I was quite worried, given that I was completely naked. Fortunately, it transpired that the camera was pointing upwards at the roof, meaning that all that could be seen was my bedroom ceiling. Could you focus the camera so we can see you? He asked. I hastily got out of bed and flung some clothes on, keeping low to the ground, just in case the camera somehow picked my naked body up. Otherwise, that would bring a completely different meaning to the notion of doing an interview from down under. Fortunately, I managed to throw some clothes on, at which point I focused the camera on my face, although my hair would have been all over the place given that I'd just got out of bed and in my haste to put some clothes on I'd put my t-shirt on back to front. Also I had no idea how to focus the camera properly so goodness knows what I looked like and what they could see. Fortunately I have no idea where these interviews are being broadcast so it's unlikely that anyone reading this will actually find them but if you search the internet thoroughly then chances are you might get to see a potentially risque shot of me naked before I managed to put some clothes on. Good luck with your search, Chloe. On the subject of internet searches, my plan to manipulate what shows up in Google when someone searches for David Eagle blind, which apparently is the most searched for query relating to my name, has backfired. In case you didn't read the dollop in which I originally talked about this, perhaps only finding this blog post by chance when searching for David Eagle naked. Or even worse, blind naked eagle, which is a very niche interest, but welcome all the same. I decided I could influence what shows up under Google results for the search term David Eagle blind by writing a blog post full of statements about me related to being blind. This was partly because I was a bit concerned that the thing I was most identical by was being blind, rather than any actual talent or achievement. So I wrote a series of fictional news reports about how David Eagle had been crowned world's sexiest blind man, world's most intelligent blind man, and world's first blind aeroplane pilot. The idea was that Google would then show these accolades in their couple of lines of text that shows in search results. Unfortunately, a couple A couple of days later, I recklessly wrote a blog with the following lines. I tried explaining to the police who I really am. I pointed them in the direction of my daily blog, hoping to prove that I am who I say I am, but apparently my blog is too full of wild fabrications for them to trust anything that I say, and so it was immediately discredited as supporting evidence. In fact, they immediately dismissed anything I said to them because they said that I'd spent my blog posts building up a series of false identities. As they pointed out to me, my blog post from two days ago was full of fabricated identities. I'd claimed that I was a pilot for EasyJet, And I'd faked a number of award wins, including World's Sexiest Blind Man and World's Most Intelligent Blind Man. Now, when you search for David Eagle Blind, Google shows the following lines of text. I'd claimed that I was a pilot for EasyJet, and I also faked a number of awards, including World's Sexiest Blind Man and World's Most Intelligent Blind Man. Damn. Unfortunately, I've not really made much of a dent in Google's search results listing for the search query, World's Sexiest Blind Man. I am the 23rd result, and sadly the two lines of text that are displayed are I'd claimed that I am a pilot for EasyJet and had faked a number of award wins including World's Sexiest Blind Man and World's Most Intelligent Blind Man. So it's permanently clear that these accolades are fake and self-contrived. However, searching for World's Sexiest Blind Man did bring up some interesting results. There's this hot blind girl in one of my classes, proclaims Bob, for some reason choosing to make this statement on the forum of New York rap rock group The Beastie Boys. Perhaps The Beastie Boys have branched out and are now working as agony ants. I'm not sure what Bob's issue is here. He basically finds a blind girl in his class at school attractive, but is seemingly too nervous to ask her out, being perturbed by the fact that she's blind. Unfortunately for Bob, it turns out that the Beastie Boys internet forum might not be the best place to go if you're trying to get genuine, conscientious, good advice. The asinine replies to this question by Beastie Boys fans suggests that maybe the Beastie Boys should have been more responsible with their messages in their songs. Maybe they should have said, You gotta fight! for your right to party. But remember that it's also important to study. Otherwise, you might end up a bit thick. Not as catchy, but more efficacious. Here is one reply to Bob's post. You can, like, tell her to go for a beer out of your fridge. And when she bumps into stuff, you can yell at her stuff like, What are you doing? Are you blind or summit?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it'll be hilarious. Here's a comment from yet another highly intelligent and witty Beastie Boys fan. Can you ask how she knows when she's done with wiping her ass? <laughs> Does she smell it? I don't, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I get the feeling that this person hasn't really thought this through logically. I want to remind you that I am blind, and so my understanding of what humans can actually see may not be entirely accurate. However, I am pretty sure that sighted people do not actually look to check if they've wiped their backsides properly, as surely it would be a physical impossibility. For a start, you are sitting on the toilet. The only way to achieve this would be to put your head between your legs and push it towards your backside. And even then, the lighting probably wouldn't be good enough, so you'd have to shine a light down there. Or I suppose you could stand up, use a mirror, and look back over your shoulder and check that way. My point is that you can tell if you've wiped your backside properly simply by feel. Okay, I'm back. I stopped writing and went and did some research on this. I've just walked into my housemate Elsa's bedroom and had a rather awkward conversation in which I asked her how she wipes her backside. For some reason, she wanted an explanation as to why I was asking her. Apparently, sighted people do check whether they have fully finished their bottom wiping by looking at the toilet paper. So perhaps this person's question wasn't as ridiculous as I initially thought. Although, Elsa is French, so maybe this is just the French way. Do English people check the toilet paper too? I assume that you just felt. Rather than bringing a bit of toilet paper up to your face and examining it, surely you can just tell by feeling. It's just obvious when you've finished. It's like when people ask blind people, how do you eat? I mean, how do you know where your mouth is? But you just do. Surely sighted people manage to eat without having to see their relative position of mouth to hand. It's just intuitive, just like wiping your backside. You know when it's done. You don't have to check. It's not like I'm coming off the toilet with my hands covered in crap. I can just tell by the way that the toilet paper interacts with my bottom. (laughs) I hope you don't think that this is smut. This is science. It says a lot about how we perceive the world and interact with the world through our senses. You've been blessed with the ability to see, yet you use this sense to achieve things that you don't really need sight to achieve. Feel free to leave a comment. How do you wipe your backside? I think of all the conversation topics thus far, this is the one that's going to set the comments box ablaze. You thought that having a genuine ghost on the blog caused a massive spike in web visitors. Well, I predict that this bottom-wiping conversation topic will cause an even greater spike